want to tell you um, about what we did last night. A group of staff and myself met, about 10 staff or so, <clears throat> up in the attic. And once every course, one of the teachers meets with the staff just to give them some extra attention. And um, we started to dialogue together. And I asked the uh, people who, who I was dialoguing to risk sort of one of their deepest fears about themselves. And several of the staff took the challenge and moved with a particular very sensitive area of themselves that uh, was very painful. One told, talked about her difficulty with her gender. Another talked about the difficulty of, of trying to please people. Another with a particular pain of how they hold people's opinions of them. And we just journeyed into that pain. And I'd like, if you could, to come with me into that journey because there's a lot that we can gain from that experience, I think. And so much of the pain was long historical pain. You could feel it. You could also feel the tenderness to which they spoke. And you could feel um, the courage it took to speak about because we were a group. And I could really get a feeling for what Sangha is when a group of people hold the space of safety together so that it allows the exploration of the deepest, most personal parts of ourselves. And they spoke about how the emotion and the thoughts would come. And then there was a springing into action in which they couldn't, in which there was a glancing through the emotion, to something outside of them in which they then projected the pain upon. Oh, he thinks this of me. And as we spoke together, encouraging 
each of the people who were dialoguing to go to that place of pain and just hold it. Not allowing the mind to skip. Not allowing the mind to dodge the pain through or around it by forming an object or a justification. And as each person approached the pain and themselves, of whatever they were talking about, the historical pain, you could feel the momentum of the past trying to find a way or an avenue out of it. Through any number of well-charted roads. Historically, laying claim to references of where it started. People in the past who have created the conditions for this pain to occur. People in the present who seem to accentuate or aggravate the pain. And as people began to speak, they were more able to hold the pain because the group was able to hold the pain. And as we just sit there with it, say, okay, this is it now, this is it, I can feel this, this is okay. Each dialogue ended in reference to stillness. taken by the power of a group of people sitting together and being able to hold that space, that tenderness together. Without judgment. Begin to see that the very way we hold ourselves is the optimum strategy to hold each other. That our ability to listen and to receive is really the essence of connectedness. 
But mostly we don't do that. Mostly we're too afraid. So I began to wonder, is this that we are so afraid of? Because it's the central core of the Buddha's teaching. What is that that the Buddha is intimating and pointing to, referencing again and again the pain of the world and the pain in ourselves? Why such emphasis? Now, for the first number of days on this retreat, most of us, most of the teachers, in interviews and in talks, have tried to lay a foundation for you to be able to hold your own inward world and to feel more comfortable with it. So that your emotions aren't as upsetting as they perhaps have been in the past to you. So that there's some willingness to experience your inward life free of the immediate reactivity to point fingers of responsibility outward. Some accountability for our inward world. But the pain, and I think that there can be a way that the that the Dharma, that the practice, can allow us to become much more comfortable. But comfort with our inward life is not the Buddha's teaching. It's essential. Nothing will happen without that comfort, without that ease, without the willingness to move into pain but it's not the essential teaching of pain. The essential teaching of pain is that within pain, is the very construction of who we are, of the sense of me, of the sense of I. And when and if we are willing to go into pain, we are willing to go into the very essence of our sense of self. I was sitting in the staff dining room today, and somebody across the table was sort of coughing without much regard to hygiene. And I found myself on the other side, irritated, just kind of irritated, because I already feel like I have a sore throat and just don't want to become sick. And I just remembered the dialogue last night, and I went to that sense of irritation. And no longer was it about the coffer. 
the person sitting across. Locked into the irritation was a whole sense of combat that was projected outward onto the coffer, which established me as the resentful person having to listen to the cough. There I was. And as I eliminated any responsibility for the irritation on the coffer and took full accountability for the irritation, just holding it, no longer about the coffer, cannot be about the coffer, Accountability for my inward experience is mine and mine alone. And with my willingness to just settle with that, came stillness. The irritation could not sustain itself when there was no justification for the pain being placed upon the other person. And so too, as I began to reflect more deeply, can anger, loneliness, impatience, fear, frustration, When we are totally and willing to be accountable to the pain without seeking any justification at all, none for it. Because the self lives within the justification. It lives within the rub, within the creation of an enemy outside of myself. When there is someone who I know is an irritant in life, I have something to rub against, a surface to be known. That surface defines who I am through the very rub with the other person. But when I'm totally accountable to the pain, there is no rub. Totally accountable to the pain to the anger, to the irritation, to the annoyance. The problem is, is that that's scary. Because we want to be known. We want something to rub against. We want a storm to be brewed. For the eye in the storm is not the eye of calm and tranquility. It is the eye of turmoil. And from turmoil from aggravation, from conflict, I am known. And so I establish enemies as the way I live. People responsible for what I feel. That's an enemy. In our hospice work, when I was a hospice manager, the nurses had a union. Now I had, in 16 years of hospice care, I'd never worked with a union before. And I just noticed over the years I was the director of this particular hospice, how each, the union and management 
we're sort of co-defined. So, I decided one day that I was going to go sit on the union side. And I was the director. Just plopped down on that side. Because I didn't feel like it should be done this way. That there's a way to do it without the antagonism. You would have thought a skunk had come into their territory. Almost to the point of holding their nose. They could not sustain the definition of unionism, and I don't care where we stand in our liberal, it's not a question of whether right or wrong in union said, please save the notes. <laughs> I'm not, it's not a union-busting talk. <laughs> but rather, rather, it's the way that we co-define each other. We've co-defined each other. And my sense of who I am depends on defining you. My worst enemy, the me, mean when I say my, the little me, and when I'm, I'm talking about the me, I'm not talking about the mind-body process, I'm talking about the, the claimer of experience, the person that we feel we are behind the experience, having the experience, the selfness, the holder, the vortex, where we think all the experience resides. The, the most feared enemy that I can have is the present moment. That is why there's so much screams, so much reverberation and posturing that went on, it's still going on in the course of us settling down into the present moment. Those are the screams of the little me. Now why is the present moment such a travesty to my sense of myself? Because known somewhere in our unconscious or conscious selves is the fact that all conditions are inherently impermanent. And I cannot sustain my pretending that they aren't when I approach the present moment. Suddenly, manifesting before me is the very essence of impermanence. And when I touch that, I suddenly have no fabric, no territory, nothing to stand on. And that has implications 
for who I am as well. And that scares the hell out of me. So what I do is I build up thought as a surface layer between myself and the present moment. And so I protect myself from the stillness which is a reference to nothing by imposing a stream of thought form between myself and that stillness. And that's why when we sit down, we just have this endless thought stream. It's a protective. We've lost the reason, perhaps, that we have initiated the protective screen, but it's working nonetheless. And you can see, how much do you really want to abide there? Maybe one breath, maybe two, Because it's earth-shattering in its implications. I can't sustain myself. There's nothing to rub up against. So we keep creating layers within the meditation to rub up against. And then we can rub up against anything. An experience can be grasped. That's a rub. Because when we grasp something as our own, we are creating not the impermanent quality that is inherent in those conditions, but something substantial and lasting that I can regain a foothold in in another sitting. And that constant referencing is very much a part of the whole process in which we live. If I ask you to define yourself, you would give me a list of impermanent conditions which you have somehow referenced as coming up in you enough so that you are now that person. As if you were never without that particular quality of mind. I'm an angry person. I'm an impatient person. I'm an irritable person. I'm a happy person. (laughs) Because the need of the self is to find some reference point that it can hold as being a stake in the ground in which it can claim reference to. Because without that reference point, it has to face the here and now in which there isn't any firm floor. I can't do that. The earth is shaking too much. It's too fearful. And fear and desire are the mechanisms of the mind that we use in order to establish those reference points. I like you, I don't like you. And in so doing, there's friction. 
Because you, who I don't like last week, is not the same you who is present in front of me now. But I can't open up to that possibility of you having changed without the implied reference that I have also changed. So if I hold you fast, that means that I am held fast in your reference. And so enormous energy goes in into the self-definitions which defy the first and most important principle of Dharma, which is there's nothing which is that there's nothing to reference. Nothing to reference. Think of it. But there is something to reference. Because in the relaxation to those conditions, there is something to reference. Feel it now. It is the elephant in the middle of the room. And all of our fears of being nothing melt when we find that what it means to be nothing is presence. It's thunderous in this room. And we work so hard to maintain our personal sense of self at the expense of virtually everything. Why? Because we fear it. We fear stepping out of a tight shoe. The conditions of the world as they present themselves then become our stakes of insanity. And we force them into a pretension of permanency so that we can count on them. However, we can't do that through the actual experience of them because the actual experience of them shows us just the opposite. So we have to pretend. And how do we pretend? We pretend by making them abstract and rather than real. 
And as long as we live in the abstract, everything is fine, except the fact that we're on a collision course with the infinite. Does pretending that you're not going to die stop you from dying? It's coming at you as fast as a train. But if I can make the conditions permanent, substantial, hard, reliable, then I feel for a while that I have propped myself up. I can stand. I can be somebody. I can enjoy myself. It's a fantastic, fantastic fantasy. It's like grief. You're with somebody And all of the hope of what it means to be with somebody goes along with that relationship. Well into the future. And then they die. And the dream. And the mind reels from the loss of that dream. And in some ways, we live in a perpetual state of grief because our dreams are constantly fading. Because they have never been real. And in some ways, the world purpose of the world, one might say, is to bring us to the threshold in which the pain in collision with the real has taken such a toll upon our fantasy that we are in despair. And at that point of despair, that's exactly where the world needs to bring us. so that we will turn around and look at the pain rather than excusing the pain or projecting it away. So the very conditions of suffering in the world are the conditions to allow us to reach the threshold in which we will move into suffering. 
to find what it is, what's its source. To find where, when we come to the place of suffering, which is really what Buddhism is about, following the line of pain inward, all of the, everything else is really spiritual dance. We follow the pain inward. And because all of the strategies of pretending have now ended, they can't sustain themselves any longer. I wish, I really wish, I could say it was your fault that I'm feeling this way. Because then, with that logic, all I would have to do is get rid of you. And that's easy to do. (laughs) I could bomb you. I could eliminate you, or I could just negate you. All of those are forms of murder. Or dismiss you. But I can't do that. I can't do that. Because I know that any of those responses to pain, other than full accountability, is more pretending. I can't do that. So now, because I'm tired of First I relax, because tightness is just more dream, just more combat, just more creating an enemy. So I relax. That's the same first step. Just relax. Now comes the all-important next step to say yes to everything. My internal world now is affirmed. No tension, no tightness, because any tightness or tension with my internal world is more enemy, is more divisiveness, is finding excuses. Okay, I'm finished with that. So I affirm virtually every aspect of my inward experience to say yes to it. Okay? I can feel this. Okay, I feel ignorant. I don't feel like I know a thing. I'm confused. Okay, that's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Let me relax with that. Let me open to that. I'm tight, I'm tense, okay. That's fine. There's not another thought to think except the one we're thinking. 
There's not another emotion to have except the one that is present. There's not another moment of possibility except the one that's occurring. Everything else is fantasy. Everything else is just mind created. I can't do that anymore. Okay, I can say yes. Which means facing the worst fear of what I thought I was. Last night when we were together around, people were coming out and they were facing the worst possible fear that they could that they could imagine themselves being in terms of confirmation of their most deep and true belief systems. How they hold themselves, what they really believe about themselves. The kind of closeted thing that you wouldn't let a pin light into. So that's what the fear tells me is in there. Okay. I can feel this. Awareness, this capacity to hold is infinite. It cannot be defeated. The Buddha said it is the Lord over everything. it arises. My God, how could I have missed it? How could I have been so remiss in what is true? How could I have missed that? All through the word yes. There's nowhere to go now. The heart is wide open. Only protected from its breath by the dreams of permanency. <laughs>